1: Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash?
0: Maybe. Shh. Services are provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Terms apply.
2: Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start
3: planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect.
2: This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today on the show, we're talking to author Jessica Lamb Shapiro, who recently published the book Promised Land, not to be confused with Promised Land. Uh, It's her journey through America's self-help culture, and it's part memoir, part history, part examination of the self-help industry and a really fun read.
1: Yeah, she is clearly incredibly on point. She knows the ins and outs of the self-help genre and part of that is because of her own family history. Yeah, her father
0: is a psychologist and and he plays a prominent role in this story and in the memoir part I should say of Promised Land. And growing up, he was always making self-help products or writing self-help books. He never became like a chicken soup for the soul style, like mega self help author, but he, you know, as you'll learn in the book, was continually and still kind of is actively engaged in the self-help industry.
1: Yeah, and uh, we learned so much from her book and from talking to her. For instance, the history of self-help, I didn't realize, stretches all the way back to ancient Egypt and the Greek philosophers. It moves through history into the Middle Ages and Renaissance with books that, you know, they talk about behavior of princes and kings that you should model or not model. Moving all the way into the 19th century and the Victorian period where, quote unquote, self-help really, really takes off. Advice on everything from marriage to having babies, to keeping a house.
0: Yeah, and it's in that Victorian era, as uh, Jessica will talk about more in our interview, that's when you see more self-help targeted specifically towards women. What jumped out to me in the history of self-help, which she lays out so well, is how in its earliest eras it was largely directed towards men, the betterment of men in order for them to... Socially climb through the ranks, mm-hmm. which makes sense because back then women really didn't have much. There um, were no, there were no ranks. Yes. Yeah, so what would, what would they climb? <laughs> and I got to say, I first heard Jessica Lam Shapiro talking about this book in an interview with Terry Gross on fresh air. And I was driving home actually from the How Stuff Works offices and it was such a fantastic interview. And it was a topic that we'd been wanting to talk about on the podcast for a while, mm-hmm. self help. And so as soon as the interview finished, I Googled her and looked up her publicist's name and hoped that she would want to come on the show. And she did. Hooray. Hooray. So we hope that you enjoy this conversation with Jessica Lam Shapiro, author of Promised Land, My Journey Through America's Self-Help Culture. So first of all, Jessica, thanks so much for coming on Stuff Mom Never Told You. So for listeners who might not be familiar with Promised Land, could you talk a little bit about your inspiration for writing this book and how that was connected
4: to your father's self-help career? I mean, it sort of happened by coincidence because my dad, who had written so many self-help books, had never reached a certain level of fame of someone like Dr. Phil or like the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. Um And so he heard about this conference for self-help authors that was taught by the guy who co-wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul. And I guess he kind of fell into this uh, seductive idea that there might be some secret that he didn't know. Um So he told me he was going to this conference and I just went because I thought it would be kind of fun and I didn't really have anything to do. Um, I had just graduated from grad school and I was in my early twenties and I was really adrift. Um, and I don't know, maybe I was secretly searching some self help for myself. Um, but I went with him and I guess what I saw there surprised me so much that it kind of piqued this curiosity. And then I started looking into self help and the history of self help. And then I got really interested because I, I kind of started to realize what an integral part of American society it is and how long it has been that way. And I've always been a real American history buff. And I'm just really interested in like what the way that America defines itself. um, And it seemed to be really wrapped up in that. So I guess that's what kind of fascinated me. Well, early self-help
1: from the Stoic philosophers all the way up to Horatio Alger seems typically, to be directed just at male readers. When did female readers start getting
4: in on the self-help game? Well, I mean, that's a really great question and sort of fascinating because, I mean, for thousands of years, it, self-help was written by men for men. And I think a lot of that was because women weren't, they didn't know how to read and they didn't know how to write and they weren't given that kind of education. Um, and so part of it is congruent with women, you know, getting getting their own education um, but basically it was after the industrial revolution, um, that you first started to see books written for women, not always by women. And they were mostly on, um, housewifery, uh, being a mother, raising children, how to keep servants in line. And they were really written for upper class women, um, cause they were always, you know, about things that you would need money to do, like have servants or have a house that you would have to manage. Um, and those were the women who also knew how to read and write. So, you know, it all kind of made sense. Um, and then later in the 19th century, you saw some women starting to write these books for women, and they started to include recipes. These early books are really interesting because they weren't on just one topic. They would be on basically every topic that could possibly relate to you as a woman. So you would buy one book, and it would have, uh, you know, how to clean your house, how to manage your servants, how to raise your kids, how to be a good wife, you know, uh, social niceties, like what forks to serve, you know, what, what, how to play, how to lay the table, um, and also recipes, and I mean, they were just like these, these hodgepodge books of like everything having to do with almost how to be a woman, and then later on, they started to get down to more specific topics, um, in the early 1900s, there were, there were diet books for men, and, and for the general public in the 1900s, but it was in the um, 20th century that you started to see diet books for women specifically, um, written by women, calorie counting, that sort of thing. And so it was really like, I would say, the early 1900s that you started to see a lot of women self-help authors then even more books directed specifically at women and then broken down by topic as opposed to one big book that covered you know every topic.
0: So it seems like even today self-help gurus tend to be men like uh, Mark Victor Hansen who started the whole Chicken Soup for the Soul empire. And I was wondering why you think this is? I mean, does it have to do perhaps with masculine gendered constructs of expertise? Are we more willing to take advice from
4: men? I mean, definitely there was a tonal difference. Um, men talk to women and women talk to women in a different way than men talk to men. (laughs) And, and generally there, I did not find such a thing as a self-help book by a woman for men. Um, you know, until much, much later on in the 20th century. And even then, it's still pretty rare. So, yeah, I I, I guess I would characterize it as more, you know, feminine, <laughs> more girly. I'm not even sure exactly what made it that way. But it was sort of more conversational and it was very um, conspiratorial. You know, like, here we are, just us girls. You know, I'm going to tell you some secrets. But, you know, it, it was a very different tone from the books that were directed towards men.
1: So The Rules was one of your least favorite self-help titles, and definitely, I think it's safe to say, uh, one of ours, too. Can you talk a little bit about why you just found it so particularly
4: terrible? Well, you know, it's funny. I think, like you, it made a big impression on me because I was in high school when it came out, and I think I was just very conscious. I was starting to become very conscious of being a woman and being around guys and wanting them to like me. So I think it, like, hit a particular like note in my psyche at that time. Um, but I also, you know, I was kind of a burgeoning feminist and I knew that some of the stuff was not a good idea. And I didn't really take a look at it until, you know, years later when I, when I was working on this book. Um, I guess, you know, a, a lot of what was difficult for me about the book is that most self-help books talk about self-control. And I think to a certain extent, self-control is important. It's important to be a functional human being and to, put your clothes on and go get a job and, you know, all that stuff. You, you can't just do whatever you want all the time. Um, but this was like anything you want to do, you can't do it. If you want to call a guy, you can't. If you want to seem interested, you can't. So it was all about suppressing all of your desires and all of your impulses and pretending to be someone you're not, which is basically a completely indifferent person Um, you know, and to me, like socially, it's troubling (laughs) to say that, you know, men can only like a certain kind of woman or a perfect woman, you know, on a personal level, it's troubling because I don't really want to do that. And so it's (laughs) troubling to me if that's like actually successful. And that's the only way that you can have a relationship is to put on a facade. And then, you know, I really question the longevity of that because, I mean, the idea that you're going to pretend for your whole life to be a certain kind of person is exhausting. Or, you know, the book is mostly about getting married and the idea that you're going to pretend to be one way, get married and then reveal your true self is also really seems like a terrible idea. So to me, like there's a logical problem in it.
0: Now, speaking of the rules, uh, it does seem like dating and relationship self-help is particularly popular among Women and based on you know your reading of the rules and other research that you've done, do you think that there is any value to it for actually starting and maintaining healthy
4: relationships? Um, you know, I think it can depending on what the promise is. You know, anything that asks you how to get or control another person, it seems to me like a bad idea and kind of destined to fail, or if it does work, it's going to require some stuff that you probably don't really want to do. Um, but on the other hand, a book that just asks you to be thoughtful about your desires, your expectations, um, what you want in a relationship, you know, and, and it's kind of having you more work on yourself and your communication. That to me seems like, you know, it, it would be useful for a relationship because communication is really important to a relationship.
1: According to 2008 data from Nielsen BookScan, women bought 74% of self-help titles on family and relationships. Why do you think women are more apt to seek
4: it out compared to men? I mean, it definitely seems to be split by gender in that when men buy self-help books, they buy self-help books about business and success. And when women buy self-help books, they buy books about others, which is to say parenting, families, relationships, that sort of thing. You know, and traditionally, women have been more concerned with their relationships with others than men for many, many, many really reasons that might have to do with biology and evolution and social structure. Um, but I think that there there are a lot of theories about about this, um, and and none of them have any real statistical research done to them. But I do think they're interesting. Um, One is that women are just more likely to ask for help because they're more community-oriented. So it's almost the very same thing that makes women want to buy books about relationships and families is the same reason that they will seek out help from other people or from books. I think that they're also less embarrassed to ask for help. You know, I think that socially men, it's like that old joke about, you know, men not wanting to ask for directions. I think there's something you know, that kind of trickles down from that where like men are embarrassed to ask for help and women are less embarrassed to ask for help. I think that, you know, women are more isolated sometimes than men, um, especially if they're at home with children. Um, and so it, it might be more necessary for them to go to a book. They might not have, you know, a family or a community to turn to, or they just might feel more isolated because of it. Um, so, so those are some of the theories that are put forth about why this might be, Um, but again, they're just kind of psychological theories based on, you know, basic ideas about women's psychology versus men's psychology.
0: One thing you talk about in toward the end of the book is how the future of self-help is largely tech driven. You mentioned things like apps that can help you maybe if you are, you know, experiencing anxiety, things like that. So do you think though that social media has a similar self-help-like quality in the same sense. Uh, Because when I was reading about this, it reminded me of seeing communities on Tumblr where you have a lot of connection going on, a lot of advice requests and advice giving, and this sense of community that does seem to be serving some kind
4: of self-soothing and self-help function. Yeah, I mean, I think in a sense it, it is that same thing. You know, I'm not familiar. I mean, I've heard of Tumblr, but I have not spent any time on it. Um, but I can speak from my experience with Facebook. Um, so many people put inspirational quotes up on their board or whatever you call it. So during the day, as I'm procrastinating and checking Facebook, I'm seeing all of these inspirational quotes. Um, people very often start posts with the sort of like, hello, hive mind, you know, <laughs> does anybody know how I can do this? Or can somebody give me advice on this? Um, and, and it is this way of, you know, kind of reaching out to community and getting help without even leaving your house. So, you know, I think in a sense, um, yeah, I'm not sure that it's any less isolating because, you know, even a lot of the people that I communicate with on Facebook, I've never actually met them in person. I just sort of know of them or they're like friends of friends. Um, so it, it's still kind of getting advice from strangers in some sense. Um, but yeah, I think that it, it there's definitely a similarity. So one thing
0: that came to mind when reading about the evolution of these Victorian self-help books and self-help more geared toward women is that it sounds so much like a lot of the themes and topics covered in women's magazines today.
4: You're absolutely right. I mean, it's so true. There are so many how-to-do X articles in women's magazines, you know, and I think that we still turn to those things because we want to know, you know, how to be women and how to achieve what we want. Um, and, yeah, I, I, that is a really interesting parallel. In fact, one of the bigger self-help books was actually written by Harper's Bazaar um, about 100 years ago. And it was one of those, uh, you know, compilations of how to be a housewife, you know, do your servants, raise your kids. Um, so, so there's definitely a link between those women's magazines and those books. This episode is brought to you by Snagajob.
1: And this might be a sensitive question, but as you have grown older, is there a type of self-help that you wish your mother in particular were around
4: to bestow on you? Absolutely. I mean, I think the, the whole idea of getting advice is so interesting because it's sort of like the book versus family. You know, there's this real, com- there's a way in which you can get advice from your family or community. Um, and then there's a way in which you get advice from strangers. And sometimes they seem diametrically opposed to me. And I think in a weird way, the mother is kind of the the symbol for advice. I mean, from what I hear, a lot of the time it's unwanted advice. (laughs) You know, mothers are calling people and telling them what to do. Um, But I think I really have missed that in a sense. You know, I would love for somebody to call and tell me what to do, um, you know, that I could trust. (laughs) And, you know, in a sense, like a mother doesn't even have to give advice, but they provide a model so just by seeing them do things a certain way and seeing their values, um, I think that can really model for a daughter um, ways that, you know, they can behave and choices that they can make. And I certainly feel like, you know, there have been pivotal moments in my life when I had to make decisions and, you know, some of them I felt were really gender specific and not necessarily something I would even want to talk to my dad about. Um, and, yeah, those were times where I really, you know, missed this idea of having a mother that I could turn to for advice.
0: Well, Jessica, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today about self-help and especially these more gendered aspects of self-help. Um, is there anything that we haven't asked you about specifically that you would like to add?
4: Yeah. I mean, you know, when I started the book, I was very, very cynical. Um, I was pretty anti-self-help. I thought it was really silly. I thought a lot of the titles were kind of, you know, idiotic. Um, and when I really started thinking about what it provides and what it can provide, and I sort of set aside the worst examples and sort of thought about it more generally and more as self-help in theory. I felt myself becoming really sympathetic to just the idea of self-help and the desire for self-help. Um, and I could really identify it, identify with it in the way that, you know, I was I was just mentioning with my mother, because when you have a hole in your family um, or in your life, and you don't have someone to ask for advice, it's really nice that there's this, you know, you can go to a bookstore and you can read a book and you can get information. You know, I, I think that information is so valuable. Um, I had an experience where, you know, I was actually worried about dying uh, at the same age my mother had died. And it was sort of a superstitious worry, um, but I, it also kind of scared me. And when I read this book um, about losing a mother... I read that it was a really, really common fear. And just that was information that I felt really kind of freed me up to not be afraid anymore. And so in that sense, I think that information can be so valuable and it doesn't matter where it's coming from. Um, you know, and, and also self-help books can make you feel better because I think we turn to them when we're feeling isolated, when we're feeling helpless and hopeless, and they can be very reassuring and they can give us a sense of hope. But you know, I guess where I, I worry about self-help books is that real change is is much more difficult, and it takes more effort and more investment on on the part of the individual and the reader than I think self-help books really ask us for. Um, and I, you know I found in my research some statistics that said people sometimes buy self-help books and they don't read them or they buy them and they read only the first twenty pages. And I think if you're not willing to put in you know, sort of sustained effort over time, you can't really expect any real change to occur. And so you're probably just going to be left with a feeling of hope or, you know, feeling better, which I think is really valuable, but maybe is not long-term going to solve anything.
0: And where can listeners go to find out more about you and about promised land
4: and other things that you might be working on? Yeah, I have a website, um, which is JessicaLamShapiro.com. Um, J E S S I C A L A M B S H A P I R O. I'm sorry, I have such a long name. Um, and I know it's available on Amazon and it's at Barnes and Noble and at an some independent bookstores. So it's definitely, you can find it online. And there's also a book called Promised Land with a D, and it's not that book. It's Promised Land without a D. <laughs>
1: Well, thank you so much again to Jessica Lamb Shapira for talking to us in this very enlightening interview, uh, about her self help journey and kind of self help culture at large and you know, it's it's an incredibly popular and widespread genre and it makes me kind of wonder, you know, Kristen, have you ever partaken I don't know that I've partaken
0: in any self-help books any any books that would be classified in the the self-help area of a bookstore but I mean thinking though about how I consume women's magazines mm-hmm. I feel like in a way I I am still participatory in that whether it's self-help in terms of uh oh well you know you could consider maybe Cheryl Sandberg's Lean In to be a self-help book of sorts or even just all of the tips and lifestyle advice that's often doled out to women and Marie Claire and glamour, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, sure. I, I agree. I have never like sought out self-help books per se, but I have said this before on the podcast and I will say it again. I freaking love O Magazine and all of the like pseudo-scientific spiritual advice in that magazine. I just love it. I can't get enough. Like, I don't, I don't know if Martha Beck is still writing for that magazine anymore or not, but like, hers, I would like flip straight to her column every month. Did, I mean, is it soothing? For you, that kind of advice, especially the pseudo spiritual stuff that you mentioned. Yeah, I I found it very reassuring and and very like okay, you're not crazy. Really, anything that tells me, hey, you're not crazy. People go through rough patches in life. I I appreciate that. Maybe I should just have that sewn onto a pillow or cross stitch it somewhere and just hang it up. I know what I'm getting you for Christmas <laughs> now. <laughs>
0: Well, everybody, definitely go check out Promised Land, My Journey Through America's Self-Help Culture by Jessica Lamb Shapiro. It is a highly engaging, entertaining, and educational book, so we give it to sminty thumbs, way, way up. And also, again... Huge thanks to Jessica Lamp-Shapiro for taking the time to talk to us. And if you have any thoughts on self-help, we'd love to hear from you. Are there any titles that have helped you out or that you kind of like, uh, Jessica negatively re- reacted to the rules? Have there been any self-help books that have really turned you off? Let us know. MomStepDiscovery.com is where you can email us or you can hit us up on Twitter at MomStepPodcast or send us a message on Facebook. And we have a couple of Facebook messages to share with you when we come right back
3: from a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where
2: America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring
3: is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your
2: bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands
3: To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. And now, back to the show.
0: So I've got a message here from Meredith about our episode on Susan B. Anthony. And she writes I know you have the utmost respect for Susan B. Anthony, and I also share your disgust that we don't know more about the other women you mention, especially women of color. I also loved how you pointed out that the story in American history highlights the intersection of race and gender. I did want to write and let you know this intersection is still going on. Of course, we both saw it during the primary campaign against Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, both vilified for different reasons, but also the church that I grew up in, the Mormon Church, did not extend priesthood to black males until 1978. During this time, there was a push in wider America for the Equal Rights Amendment, which the Mormon Church was distinctly against. There were some powerful women excommunicated from the Mormon Church for their support of the ERA. However, to my knowledge, no black man has ever been excommunicated for pushing for black priesthood. And women still don't have much more say in the Mormon Church than they did in the early 1980s. Because of this, I can sympathize with Susan B. Anthony's inability to support the 15th Amendment since it did not achieve full equality. It's always hard to push for something and then be left out because you're a woman. I don't think that I could ever be as single-minded as Susan B. Anthony, but I'm glad people like her still exist. In the Mormon Church, which I have left, the fight is on in Kate Kelly, who is pushing hard for female ordination. I really love your
1: podcast, and thanks so much.
0: And thanks, Meredith, for that insight into the Mormon
3: Church.
1: And I have a message here from Kendall talking about our engagement ring episode. Uh, she says, A couple of years ago, I decided I was going to propose to my now-husband, And Leap Day was approaching, so I thought that would be the perfect day. I went shopping and agonized over which band to buy him, and finally settled on one, a simple sterling silver band. I carried that thing around with me for a few weeks and planned a special night for Leap Day. The weekend before Leap Day, we were jointly filing taxes for the first time, and our accountant playfully told us right before we filed that this would be it, and in the eyes of the government, we would be officially married, and are we sure? I'm not sure how true this is, but it is what he told us. In a moment of panic, I took the ring out of my bag and proposed so we would have at least five minutes of being engaged before the IRS considered us married. He was so surprised. It was pretty great. I wore a simple sterling band, and last year for my birthday, he took me shopping for a ring. Because we do everything out of order, so why not buy an engagement ring after you're already married? I love the podcast and can't wait to get through more of your great stuff. So thank you, Kendall. That's a great story. And congratulations. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. com is where
0: you can send your emails. And for links to all of our other social media presences, as well as all of our podcast videos and blogs, you should head on over to our website, It's StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit
2: HowStuffWorks.com. To start planning your trip, visit
3: tnvacation.com. Tennessee. Sounds perfect. This
2: episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive